This passage is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 9. Or do you not know that wrong, wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to be back. I missed last weekend, and man, I love being here. I love singing with you all, some beautiful people. Really good to be back. We are in uh, the middle, actually the tail end of a series we've been doing where we've actually asked for questions, and then we're responding to those questions with sermons. And so we put online a place where members or people from the community outside the church could ask questions. And for the last six weeks, we've been answering those questions, which has been a lot of fun, if, uh, if that's your definition of fun. It's been a ton of fun. Uh, it's been challenging, I think, in a lot of good ways, especially for me. Um, but I, I've been reminded several times that these questions are not merely intellectual. Uh, we're not just stepping into questions of, of reason and, and doubt. Uh, these are questions that run to the very core of our being. We're, we're stepping into our deepest hopes, our greatest fears, our, our desires, our, our longings for life as it should be. And so these things are, are deeply, deeply personal within us. And we're all in pursuit of meaning and satisfaction and wisdom in a world that is, that is broken and that is hard to live into. And this morning, we're, we're stepping back into a conversation on gender, and we're looking at the question of homosexuality. And this is something that's not merely an issue. It's not merely a doctrine. It's not merely a, a, a political uh, issue. This is a, a deeply personal thing. Our, our sexuality is, is such a deep part of who we are. It's not the truest thing about us. It's not equivalent with gender, but it is such a deep thing to who we are. And so we don't want to talk uh, loosely as the kids go running by. I love it. Um, but we want to step into this question recognizing it's not merely an issue. This is a deeply personal thing. Now, about a month ago, there was another church in town that preached a sermon on gender. And there was a, a pretty significant public backlash to that sermon. And it really mostly played out over social media and the newspapers. And it just, 
it reminded me of, of how important this question is to so many people, but also what, what it looks like to step into this question. I think for us as a church, if we don't talk about some of the hard questions related to the faith, we're not, we're not really serving and love or loving our own members well or even the community. But also if we only talk about these things from the pulpit and on Sundays and we're not actually involved in the lives of people who aren't like us or who don't agree with us, we're, we're not loving and serving them either. And so I'm reminded how deeply personal this is and how we ought to go about this uh, extremely relationally. We ought to be in the lives of others, whether they agree with us or not, whether they think we're crazy or not. But we enter the conversation graciously. And so I've been tempted, like, the last several weeks, like, nonstop. Can we just jump to, like, a Christmas series? Can we just go straight to Advent? Nobody dislikes baby Jesus. We could just make it, like, an eight-week Advent. We could do it all year. I love Advent. But I think we need to continue this conversation. I think we need to continue to step into to hard things and let our, let our minds and our hearts be shaped by God's word. Now, I, uh, as you might imagine, I hold a, a historic Christian position, and we do as a church, the historic position that, that homosexuality, homosexuality uh, lived fully into same gender sex is outside the will and the design of God. I don't assume that everybody here in this room holds that question. I'm, I'm hoping that that some people are just stepping in here for the first time. And yet I recognize that, that for many of us that, that hold this traditional position, it can just merely feel like an issue. It can, it can feel impersonal. And so I want us to stop and, and to personalize this for a minute and, and to imagine yourself at, at 10 years old and at the time when all of your peers are beginning to, to talk about and make jokes about the other gender, all you can think about is your own gender. And you feel like this may not be the way it should be and, and you want to change in your mind and the years go on and then you're 16 and a lot of your friends are having relationships with the opposite gender but all you can think about is your own gender all you can be attracted to is your own gender and you go to church and you hear that this is wrong that it's you know an abomination from leviticus and you feel trapped and then you enter your your early 20s trying to figure out do i have to choose between christianity and between what i feel between the the Christian community and the gay community. Or imagine if you're a parent, you have a child that, that grows up in this way. And so no matter where you are on this as an issue, I don't want you to be far off from this personally or to think that it's something just, just distant from us and that it doesn't affect our everyday lives. And the challenge for us as a church family is to do careful and honest biblical study, but also to be in actual relationships with one another and with those outside of the church. And then lastly, the challenge is, is also when there's times for us to, to have a position that's, that's socially, uh, you know, either unacceptable or unpopular, to be able to hold that position without becoming bitter or judgmental or anxious or angry. Now, as a, as a preface before we dive in, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to answer every single question on the topic of homosexuality. That would take a, a much longer sermon. I actually listened to a sermon this week. Uh, the introduction was 30 minutes long, and so I looked down at the little thing. I was like, how long is this sermon? 87 and a half minutes, a single sermon on this topic. And I actually listened to it. It was pretty good. But 87 and a half minutes, that's a little bit more than we're going to do today for the sake of our kids' servants and you also. 
So in like 35 minutes, how do we step into the biblical and the practical uh, things that God's word has to say to us this morning? The two, well, rather the one big question and then two related questions we're looking at. What does the Bible teach about homosexuality? And then second, how do we love and serve the gay community? Third, what about me? What if I struggle with same-sex attraction? So let me pray, and then we're going to dive into it. Father, we come before you as, as your people and as those seeking your face, seeking wisdom, guidance, direction, transformation. Father, we, we acknowledge that we have been made in your image, and yet every one of us has, has revolted against that image in some way or another. There is nobody here that isn't sexually broken to some degree or doesn't have some sexual sin in their past. And these things can run so deep in our hearts and minds as, as we sit before a message like this. For those here that have been wrestling with this question on a, on a personal level for many years, I pray that you would, would speak to them and, and meet with them. If it took everything in them just to come this morning, would you meet with them? Lord Jesus Christ, would you be among us by your presence? Would you show us who you are? Would you show us the way that you interacted with people and just how, how generous and loving and warm you are? And Holy Spirit of God, we know that you're among us and yet we, we still invite you to be among us in power. Would you reveal to us the, the truth and the power of of the words of Scripture, would you open our eyes to the Father and the Son? Convict our hearts where they need to be convicted, but encourage where they need to be encouraged. And Father, would you make us into a church that, that looks like your Son, that reflects his life and ministry. And so we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Now, before we dive into some of the, the Bible texts on this topic, I want to ask, how did we get here? How did we get to this point historically and culturally? How did we end up where we are, where this is such a socially charged question? It's not only deeply personal, it's a socially and a, a politically and culturally charged question. And in about uh, in 1969 in New York City, you may be familiar with the Stonewall riots that launched the gay rights movement. Throughout the 70s and 80s, the gay rights movement continued uh, with some minor steps forward. But what they, what they did, the, the activists for gay rights, is they mostly tied their agenda to the agenda of justice. And so on the one hand of this conversation, you have people who view the issue of homosexuality as a justice issue. And they believe that if you fight for justice, then you will fight for gay rights. And so they connected the fight for gay rights with a fight against racism, a fight against sexism, a fight against classism. And so you have this one group, and now you have a second group who responded to that first group, a more conservative group. And it was the second group that, that sort of helped this become a cultural war. And you know something's a cultural war because they're actually using military language against each other, which is the case in this conversation. And so the second group, the more conservative group, it launched the religious right in the 80s, which was mostly a response to the gay rights movement. And it was the religious right that did the exact same thing. They tied their position to every other conservative political 
agenda. And so if you're pro-life, if you're pro-family, if you're pro-prayer in schools, if you're pro-low taxes for wealthy people, then you must be against homosexuality. And so for the conservative side, it was a morality issue. And so I don't know if you feel this in our culture where you have to choose between something that's presented as a justice issue or a morality issue and something that's now been tied to our two political parties. And so you have a progressive side almost entirely aligned with the Democratic Party. Is that going in and out? Are you hearing that? Okay, all right. I'm hearing the mic go in and out, so sorry about that. But you have a a, a progressive political party that views this as a justice issue and says that if you really love people, then you will be pro-gay rights. And then on the other side, you have a mostly conservative group that's almost entirely tied to the Republican Party who sees this as a morality issue and says, if you're a truly good person, then you will be against gay rights. And so you can see how this becomes a culture war, that we only have these two polarizing options and they line up perfectly with our nation's political parties. And if you're like me, every time something falls into the two categories of our political options, I just want to move to Switzerland or Iceland or wherever they don't have to deal with these things. I don't know what that place is, but that's where I want to live because I just can't handle it anymore. And so I ask as a Christian, and for us as Christians, what does it look like not to be guided by the culture, but to be guided by the scriptures? Not to say that there's just these two options and they're political, but to say what do the scriptures actually say on this topic? And in the conversation about homosexuality, it begins with a conversation about gender, but the conversation about gender begins with a conversation about God's design, his creation. And God created us, female and male, in his image. We talked about this two weeks ago, and this is mostly a summary, but in Genesis 1, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then moments later, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And when God created, it wasn't out of need. It wasn't because he needed to complete himself. He wasn't lonely. God has been in relationship within his very own being, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has everything he needs. He creates only out of love. He creates to share his glory, to to extend his glory to creatures that can reflect that goodness and that grace back to him. And he creates us in a way, male and female, that we can most accurately represent something that's true about God. Something that's true about the gospel, how God saves us and joins us to a church family. And so he creates woman and man from one flesh, from Adam's rib. And then in marriage, the husband and wife return to one flesh. And this one flesh reality, it's not just an illustration of marriage, it's an illustration of salvation. That through faith in Christ, we become one with him, the doctrine of union with Christ. And if we are one with Christ, then everything that's true about him is now true of us. And everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. And that's the good news of Christianity, that we have a one flesh relationship with Christ. And at the end of the age, the finale of this life and world, the illustration of marriage is gone. And the reality is here that we as Christ's church are married to him. And this one flesh relationship between Christ and church becomes fully realized. Now, the teaching of Scripture is, is consistent across the board. And in Matthew 19, when Jesus he quotes Scripture, saying it as God's words, affirming New Test- or Old Testament teaching, and he says that marriage is for one man and one woman for a lifetime, 
And then he adds, what God has joined together, let no one separate or let no one asunder. If you've been to one of those weddings, I like to say asunder at weddings. (laughs) And so the Bible gives this sort of comprehensive and, and consistent view of manhood and womanhood and gender. And it's far deeper than sexuality, but includes our sexuality. And when the Bible talks about homosexuality in the passages we're going to look at, it's primarily talking about same-gender sex. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we're going through this. We're going to talk about same-sex attraction when, when it's not acted on or stepped into. We're going to talk about that. But in these passages, what the New Testament is talking about is same-gender sex. And so 1 Corinthians 6, this passage we've looked at, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And so first of all, when Paul is writing this passage, he's speaking of identity. He's saying you once were this, and then he lists off all these these sort of sins and, and ways of life that are not in line with his design. He says you once were this, but now you are this, washed, sanctified, justified. There's an entire transformation of our identity when we come to Christ and we leave behind the old way and we step into an entirely new life and a new way of being. He's not trying to convince non-Christians to change their sexual identity. He's calling members of the church to leave behind their old way of life completely, regardless of what that looks like. Now, second, notice also that Paul's not exclusively talking about same-gendered sex. That's not some next-level sin, and that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to choose and meditate on this passage is that it lists all sorts of sins. There's like a dozen sins here. Maybe three or four of them relate to sexual sin, and then only one of those relates to homosexual sin. And I think that's important for us to keep in mind that this is not a next level sin. This is not something the church holds to and teaches on more than anything else. The Bible is, is crystal clear about sexual sin from beginning to end. The Bible talks about sexual sin all the time in almost every one of the genres of the Bible. There's warnings against sexual sin and an invitation to be set free from it. Most of the time it's talking about heterosexual sin. And yet at the same time, explicitly, Paul does list same-gendered sex in a list of sins. In Romans 1, Paul's writing to another group of churches, and he's describing non-believers who have completely rejected God and have traded his image for the image of idols. They've chosen to, to live for the things of the world rather than the things of God. And it says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. One of the most common statements I've seen in my conversations and in research of same-sex supporting Christians, of of gay-affirming Christians, is that the Bible doesn't actually reject homosexuality. It only rejects homosexual sins like prostitution or, or the, the really bad stuff, but it doesn't actually reject homosexuality as a way of life. 
And yet here we have Paul saying, he's not talking about power dynamics, he's not talking about prostitution. He says that women choosing to live in homosexual relationships with each other is unnatural. And then speaking of the men, he says, they were inflamed with lust for one another, which is clearly implying a, a consensual relationship, not a relationship of prostitution or that's non-consensual. And so as Christians, we believe that same gender sex is a sin. And yet there's good news. For a, a gay non-Christian is, is no more lost than, than a straight non-Christian. Somebody who struggles with homosexual sin is no more lost than somebody who struggles with heterosexual sin. No one is too far off. Nobody is too damaged. Jesus didn't die for just a few certain sins that we want to pick and choose. The entire message of Christianity is total liberation, freedom from everything in our past, every form of immorality, every form of brokenness. And so our passage says the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? I want you to hear that what the Bible says about homosexuality, it's not everything that God wants to say to a gay person. Does that make sense? What the Bible says about homosexuality, that's not everything that God says to a gay person. The entire Bible is, is for you, whether you're gay or straight. All the promises of God can be stepped into regardless of your orientation. And Christianity believes that you can be set free, not just sexually, but holistically. Whatever it is, you can be set free. That doesn't mean the struggles go away. That doesn't mean you don't you know, wrestle with things the rest of your life, but there is an inner liberation that comes only in Christ. Paul says our bodies belong to God, which is incredible that our bodies matter so much to God. So much so that at the end of the age, our passage says the same power that raised the Lord from the dead, he will raise us also. And I hope you feel what good news that is, that, that this broken down body of mine and of yours will one day be resurrected. You're not just given some new body like off a shelf that's perfect and has been in you know, the plastic forever. Your own body is resurrected and redeemed and restored and you will live an embodied future for all eternity. It's incredible. I am a little disappointed that we haven't yet got the question Will I be able to fly in heaven? If we are embodied beings for all time, can we fly? I think it's in play. We've got Q&A tonight. We can get into it. We're not doing a whole sermon on flying, much as I wanted to. Let me just say it's in play, and I've got reasons. Our bodies belong to God. Our bodies matter to God. And what Jesus does, regardless of who we are, he calls us to give ourselves totally and completely to him. He says there's to be no hint of sexual immorality within the church, within the, the believing Christian, not just homosexual sins, but heterosexual sins as well. Sex outside of marriage, lusting after someone, looking at pornography, emotional affairs, masturbation. Jesus says that all of this is a misuse of God's good and glorious gift that's meant for one woman and one man for an entire lifetime. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Do you feel this? But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. 
I have no doubt that everybody in this room has some kind of sexual brokenness in their past, some kind of sexual sin in their past. And there's something about these sins that stick with us so deeply. Something you did 20 years ago can still pop to mind on a regular basis because it's so deep to who we are. It shapes us. There's, there's a guilt that is so hard to get rid of in sexual sin. We feel that whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We have far too low of a view of our own bodies. Regardless of your orientation, the call is to find rest in God. Now, the second big question, what does it look like for us as a people to love and to serve the gay community? And if that's you, I want that to be clear that we want to love you and serve you and care for you. We want to see you thriving and flourishing. We want to see you in a deep and abiding relationship with Christ. Whether you're a believer now or whether you're not a believer, whether you're still trying to put it all together, we long to see you made whole just like anybody else. The way that we talk about sexual orientation, it matters whether you're a Christian or not. The way that we're going to speak with you about this, it all depends on if you're a Christian or not. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? God will judge those outside. It is our responsibility, he says, to teach and to speak truth and love with those inside the church. And so for non-Christians, the whole conversation begins and ends with Jesus. There's no reason to make the, the overwhelming statement that you need to change from your ways if somebody doesn't believe in Jesus and in the resurrection. Well, of course you're not going to agree with us on our sexual ethics if you don't believe in Jesus. The only reason we have our sexual ethics is because we believe in a resurrection. And if Jesus was really resurrected, then we want to give our entire lives to somebody like that, with that power, with that strength, with that glory, and with that love. And so, of course, we're not going to agree on other things if we don't agree on who Jesus is and what he came to do. And if you say, well, Christians are just crazy on gender, it's not just gender. Like, we're crazy on all sorts of stuff, our views on money. It's like, if you can get past the gender thing, there's just going to be another one. (laughs) If you don't believe that Jesus is Lord and risen from the dead, nothing else makes sense. We get that. We know how ridiculous we sound to our culture. So the thing is, this church loves you whether you are gay or straight. Whether you believe in Christ or not, whether you agree with our position or not, this is a place of love for you. And it is that because we have first been loved by God, not because we did anything, not because we cleaned it up, not because we don't struggle with certain things, but because we are so aware of our complete and utter brokenness that our only hope is Jesus. It's not that the ones inside the church have the lowest view of their own sin. We know our sin better than anyone, and that's why we're here. That's why we do confession of sin every single week, because we need to. And we need to be reminded of the assurance that we have in the gospel. In fact, we love you so much that we're even willing to be rejected by you. We're willing to have the hard conversation and have you cut off 
relationship and, and, you know, spread things about us and we lose our reputation. We actually love you so much we're willing to risk all of that for you. Now, for somebody who identifies as gay and as a Christian, the conversation still begins and ends with Jesus, but it includes a call to obedience. I have a few friends who identify as gay Christians and, and fully embrace the lifestyle, who have moved into, into marriage, and believe that they can, they can be true to the scriptures and live in a homosexual marriage. And when I've asked them about this, uh, just over conversation and over coffee, one of the things I've gotten in response is, I, you know, I'm not a Bible scholar. I don't have all the answers. The Bible's not clear on this, but I know what's right for me. And on one level, that resonates with me because I, I love the authenticity. But on the other hand, I recognize that that's a statement of, of authenticity over truth. If you're a Christian and you're saying the Bible is God's revealed word as we believe it is, and we talked about that in week three, it's online. But if you believe the Bible is God's word, then you have to do some serious business with it. All of us do. We have to say, what does it say about me? What does it say about my proclivities to sin? There's a, a local church in town over the last few weeks that posted a message in support of same-sex marriage. And it said something to the, to the uh, effect of whenever God sees you, he's never disappointed. When God sees you, he's, he's never disappointed. Which again, on one level, I say, absolutely, God loves us so much. God even loves the one who's the farthest off so much. God loved the whole world that he sent his son. And yet, can we really say that God is, is never upset with the things that we choose to do? That God only exists to affirm whatever it is that we want and we desire and that we step into. We could think of extreme examples to show that God, a God of justice and of goodness, will be against some of the things that we want to do. And so sometimes I've been asked, are we an affirming church or a non-affirming church? You've heard these categories? We'll say, are you an affirming church or a non-affirming church on this topic? Do you affirm or do you not affirm? And I want to say we're a welcoming church. Anytime there's two options like that, I just want to say, I reject the premise. <laughs> That's why I'm never invited to Q&As, you know, like on a panel, because every time they'll be, are you this or are you this? And I just reject the premise. They're like, well, why did we invite you? Because there's so much about our non-Christian friends that we want to affirm, regardless of their sexual orientation. And yet there's so much of their lifestyles that we're not going to affirm, regardless of their sexual orientation. And yet we are a welcoming church. This is a place of, of open arms, welcoming embrace for anybody, regardless of where you're at, whether you agree with us or not. This is a welcoming church. Now, we've been talking about people who affirm homosexuality, live fully into the lifestyle. But what about those who love Jesus, believe the scriptures, prohibit a gay lifestyle, and yet still struggle their entire lives with same-sex attraction? That's the last question. And I deeply believe that the Bible does not condemn same-sex attraction. Having an orientation towards the same sex in itself is not any worse than lusting after somebody of the opposite gender. Simply having a same-sex attraction or orientation is not condemned in these passages. It's the acting on the attraction in the same way that if I act on an attraction outside of my marriage, it's going to be wrong. 
Like any other struggle or proclivity, some are more likely to struggle with pride or greed or ang anger. We continually bring these things before the Lord. Every one of us has things that we struggle with, and there are certain sins that are going to be more popular than others, which is crazy in the church, right? That we take a certain set of sins and say, these are the absolute worst. These are actually kind of okay. We don't, we don't worry about these too much. No, we continually bring our struggles before the Lord. We bring our need for Him continually before Him. And experiencing same-sex attraction, it, it doesn't disqualify you from a deep life in Christ. It doesn't disqualify you from a rich network of relationships or leadership in the church. Same-sex attraction is not the truest thing about you. Any more than, than lusting after somebody of the opposite gender is the truest thing about you. And so what does that mean for somebody who's same-sex attracted? What does it look like for them to, to move through life in a godly way? It's a hard question. For most of my friends who, who identify and experience same-sex attraction, the choice that they've made is to remain single and celibate. And I think this is an incredible thing, and I think the church has to have a high view of singleness because the scriptures have such a high view of singleness. In Matthew 19, Jesus affirms it. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul affirms it. Both of them say, if you are able to remain single, you should do it. Which is kind of crazy to think about in the American church. The church has to demonstrate that it's Christ who's our ultimate relationship. That that relationship is fully satisfying. And while some are called to marriage, others are called to singleness. Sam Albury is a popular Christian writer who... Um, has identified with same-sex attraction his whole life. And he says, as a single man, I'm grateful that I've been able to drop everything to spend time with friends in great need. It has meant the world to me to be able to do that, and it would not have been so easy if I were married. I'm thankful, too, for the wide range of relationships I've been able to cultivate. Now, we know, too, that those who are single and choose to be single for their whole lives will face many challenges, will face loneliness will face isolation, will face sexual temptation in ways that others who are married might not. And that's where we as a church community need to be strong enough and, and brave enough and welcoming enough to be in real relationships with one another. To truly believe that friendship is not some second-class relationship to marriage, but that friendship is at the heart of the gospel that Jesus calls us friends. Rebecca McLaughlin wrote the book Confronting Christianity. I've referenced it probably in every sermon. And she lives with same-sex attraction, but describes in, in that chapter of the book why she chose to marry a man and have kids despite the orientation. She says, in a biblical framework, friendship is not the consolation prize for those who fail to gain romantic love. Like marriage and parenthood, it's another way in which God manifests an aspect of his love for us. And so if this is you, if you feel a predominant same-sex attraction, when you're ready, this is a place that you can, you can talk to people about that. You can talk to your friends. You can talk to your pastors. You can talk to your community group. And we can walk alongside you. You're not meant to do life alone by yourself. Now, as we're wrapping up, I know this is hard stuff. These are positions that uh, those of us who hold them, uh, we know that they are incredibly unpopular. We know and we felt to different degrees and different times 
a level of rejection, a level of misunderstanding, even a level of persecution. And so I want to close in, in talking to, to members of the church and, and those who, who hold the traditional position to ask what does it look like to respond to, to negativity? What does it look like, whether it's this topic or another one, what does it look like to face rejection and misunderstanding and persecution over what we believe about the faith? And so number one, the first thing I would say is don't be surprised and don't be judgmental. If somebody calls you a moron or a bigot for believing that following Jesus means believing his sexual ethic, respond with love, with gentleness. And I think an important thing is that we often feel like we have to have all the answers like right there in the moment if somebody's threatening us or accusing us. And there's a place for a, de a defense, but there's, you don't have to have the exact right words. You don't need to convince somebody in that moment. If you walk away feeling like you failed the conversation, like they're just going to continue to misunderstand and misrepresent you, like that's going to happen. The posture we take is one of love and of, of non-judgment. And as we're able, we're, we speak truth and love. But so many times we're not going to have the right words. We're not going to have that like, you know, key that unlocks their mind and then all of a sudden they just see everything the same way as us. I've been thinking a lot about this uh, poem by Wendell Berry, Kentucky uh, writer and, and poet. And he says, I dream of a quiet man who explains nothing and defends nothing, but only knows where the rarest wildflowers are blooming and who goes and finds that he is smiling not by his own will. And I keep thinking of that. I, I dream of a quiet man because I think there are so many times where, where we're expected to give a defense, where we're expected to have an answer, we're expected to, to fight back or defend ourselves. And yet how many times do we, we look at the example of Christ and we see him not defending himself, but simply loving, simply responding with love and kindness, seeking to understand and so anytime I'm in a hard conversation, regardless of the topic, it could be with my own kids. I just think I dream of a quiet man. I dream of a quiet man. <laughs> well, the second and most important thing is to immerse yourself in the example and the presence of Jesus. This Jesus who teaches the highest possible sexual ethic on the mountain and he holds up one man one woman for a lifetime and then he rejects every form of sin this incredibly high sexual ethic nobody has a a harder sexual ethic to follow than jesus as soon as he comes down the mountain he just starts greeting people and it's the woman at the well that he he offers living water to it's, it's the prostitute who comes and washes his feet that, that he affirms and says the kingdom belongs to you it's so radical, it's so, so mind-blowing that this same Jesus that would hold forward this incredible call to purity is also the same Jesus who, who gets down in the, the dirt and the sand and, and recognizes that we are going to fail over and over and over. And still he loves us, still he shows us grace. In Jesus we see the perfect expression of both truth and of love and there's no conflict there. And so if you're struggling with the love part, then you go to Jesus and look to his example. If you're struggling with the truth part, then you go to Jesus and look at his example. 
And I'm so convinced that all of our deepest longings, underneath the longings for, for sex or freedom or for power, there are deeper longings beneath those. You can ask, what do I really want when I want freedom? What do I really want when I want sexual, you know, some form of sexual sin? Beneath all these things, I'm deeply convinced is a, de- a desire to be known, a desire to be loved, a desire to be safe. A desire to belong somewhere to the God of the universe and to belong to his people where we can be who we are in process, struggling but becoming what God has called us to be. Only Jesus can provide this freedom because he's the only one that took his sins onto himself. The only one that cared so much for us that he actually died for all of our sins to restore us to his Father. And we know that he rose again from the grave and we saw in our passage that in doing so, he started a brand new day and all of us will be resurrected too. A new life awaits us, a a redeemed and restored body awaits us. The old will be gone. He will raise us also. And so looking to Jesus, we can be a different kind of church. We can be actively engaged in the lives of those who disagree with us. We can simply try to live a godly life as a godly church. I came across a paragraph that was so encouraging. In a book that I was reading this week, it was by a philosopher encouraging people to to take a second look, as he says, at Christianity. It's interesting. He says, I encourage a second look at the church. Let your eyes skate past the evangelical industrial complex And take note of the almost invisible church in your neighborhood that you've driven by a thousand times without noticing. Check it on some Tuesday night and see if the lights aren't on in the basement. Maybe the food pantry's open or the congregation is offering a marriage class. It might just be the choir practicing. And I don't know why this passage struck me so deeply this week. We don't even have a building. There's no... There's no basement with lights. But I thought about how we gather in homes every week. We gather at coffee shops. We gather in parks. And the lights are on. And we're doing what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. The challenges change. The issues change. And yet the call remains the same. And so we go on serving. We go on teaching. We go on singing. Our faith, our beliefs, they're all motivated by love. And this message is for everyone. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Let's pray.